Charles Finney, Supernatural Healing The Lord taught me, in those early days of my Christian experience, many very important truths in regard to the spirit of prayer. Not long after I was converted, a woman with whom I had boarded though I did not board with her at this time, was taken very sick. She was not a Christian, but her husband was a professor of religion. He came into our office one evening, being a brother of Squire W., and said to me, My wife cannot live through the night. This seemed to plant an arrow, as it were, in my heart. It came upon me in the sense of a burden that crushed me, the nature of which I could not at all understand. But with it came an intense desire to pray for that woman. The burden was so great that I left the office almost immediately, and went up to the meeting house, to pray for her. There I struggled, but could not say much. I could only groan with groanings loud and deep. I stayed a considerable time in the church, in this state of mind, but got no relief. I returned to the office, but could not sit still. I could only walk the room and agonize. I returned to the meeting house again, and went through the same process of struggling. For a long time I tried to get my prayer before the Lord. But somehow words could not express it. I could only groan and weep, without being able to express what I wanted in words. I returned to the office again, and still found I was unable to rest. And I returned a third time to the meeting house. At this time the Lord gave me power to prevail. I was enabled to roll the burden upon him. And I obtained the assurance in my own mind that the woman would not die, and indeed that she would never die in her sins. I returned to the office. My mind was perfectly quiet, and I soon left and retired to rest. Early the next morning the husband of this woman came into the office. I inquired how his wife was. He, smiling said, she's alive, and to all appearance better this morning. I replied, Brother W, she will not die with this sickness. You may rely upon it. And she will never die in her sins. I do not know how I was made sure of this. But it was in some way made plain to me, so that I had no doubt that she would recover. She did recover, and soon after obtained a hope in Christ. I recollect that one Sabbath morning, while I was preaching, I was describing the manner in which some men would oppose their families, and if possible, prevent their being converted. I gave so vivid a description of a case of this kind, that I said, Probably if I were acquainted with you, I could call some of you by name, who treat your families in this manner. At this instant a man cried out in the congregation, Name me. And then threw his head forward on the seat before him. And it was plain that he trembled with great emotion. It turned out that he was treating his family in this manner. And that morning had done the same things that I had named. He said, He's crying out, Name me. Was so spontaneous and irresistible that he could not help it but I fear he was never converted to Christ. Soon after the adjournment of the convention, on the Sabbath, as I came out of the pulpit, a young lady by the name of S., from Steventown, was introduced to me. She asked me if I could not go up to their town and preach. I replied, that my hands were full, and that I did not see that I could. On the next Sabbath, Miss S. met me again, as I came out of the pulpit, and begged me to go up there and preach. Accordingly the next Sabbath, after preaching the second time, one of the young converts at New Lebanon offered to take me up to Steventown in his carriage. When he came in his buggy to take me, I asked him, Have you a steady horse? Oh yes. He replied, Perfectly so. And smiling, asked, What made you ask the question? Because, I replied, If the Lord wants me to go to Steventown, 
the devil will prevent it if he can, and if you have not a steady horse, he will try to make him kill me. He smiled, and we rode on. And, strange to tell, before we got there, that horse ran away twice, and came near killing us. His owner expressed the greatest astonishment, and said he had never known such a thing before. In the meantime, my own mind was much exercised in prayer, and I found that the spirit of prayer was prevailing, especially among the female members of the church. Mrs. B and Mrs. H, the wives of two of the elders of the church, I found, were, almost immediately, greatly exercised in prayer. Each of them had families of unconverted children, and they laid hold in prayer with an earnestness that, to me, gave promise that their families must be converted. Mrs. H, however, was a woman of very feeble health, and had not ventured out much, to any meeting, for a long time. But, as the day was pleasant, she was out at the prayer meeting to which I have alluded, and seemed to catch the inspiration of that meeting, and took it home with her. It was the next week, I think, that I called him at Mr. H's, and found him pale and agitated. He said to me, Brother Finey, I think my wife will die. She is so exercised in her mind that she cannot rest day or night, but is given up entirely to prayer. She has been all the morning, said he, in her room, groaning and struggling in prayer, and I am afraid it will entirely overcome her strength. Hearing my voice in the sitting room, she came out from her bedroom, and upon her face was a most heavenly glow. Her countenance was lighted up with a hope and a joy that were plainly from heaven. She exclaimed, Brother Finey, the Lord has come. This work will spread over all this region. A cloud of mercy overhangs us all. And we shall see such a work of grace as we have never yet seen. Her husband looked surprised, confounded, and knew not what to say. It was new to him, but not to me. I had witnessed such scenes before, and believed that prayer had prevailed. Nay, I felt sure of it in my own soul. I have not said much, as yet, of the spirit of prayer that prevailed in this revival, which I must not omit to mention. When I was on my way to Rochester, as we passed through a village, some thirty miles east of Rochester, a brother minister whom I knew, seeing me on the canal boat, jumped aboard to have a little conversation with me, intending to ride but a little way in return. He, however, became interested in conversation, and upon finding where I was going, he made up his mind to keep on and go with me to Rochester. We had been there but a few days when this minister became so convicted that he could not help weeping aloud, at one time, as he passed along the street. The Lord gave him a powerful spirit of prayer, and his heart was broken. As he and I prayed much together, I was struck with his faith in regard to what the Lord was going to do there. I recollect he would say, Lord, I do not know how it is. But I seem to know that thou art going to do a great work in this city. The spirit of prayer was poured out powerfully, so much so, that some persons stayed away from the public services to pray, being unable to restrain their feelings under preaching. As the people withdrew, I observed a woman in the arms of some of her friends, who were supporting her, in one part of the house. And I went to see what was the matter, supposing that she was in a fainting fit. But I soon found that she was not fainting, but that she could not speak. There was a look of the greatest anguish in her face, and she made me understand that she could not speak. I advised the women to take her home, and pray with her, and see what the Lord would do. They informed me that she was Miss G, sister of the well-known missionary, and that she was a member of the church in good standing, 
and had been for several years. That evening, instead of going to my usual lodgings, I accepted an invitation and went home with the family where I had not before stopped overnight. Early in the morning I found that I had been sent for to the place where I was supposed to be, several times during the night, to visit families where there were persons under awful distress of mind. This led me to sally forth among the people, and everywhere I found a state of wonderful conviction of sin and alarm for their souls. After lying in a speechless state about sixteen hours, Miss G's mouth was opened, and a new song was given her. She was taken from the horrible pit of miry clay, and her feet were set upon a rock. And it was true that many saw it and feared. It occasioned a great searching among the members of the church. She declared that she had been entirely deceived, that for eight years she had been a member of the church, and thought she was a Christian, but, during the sermon the night before, she saw that she had never known the true God. And when his character aroused before her mind as it was then presented, her hope perished, as she expressed it, like a moth. She said, such a view of the holiness of God was presented, that like a great wave it swept her away from her standing, and annihilated her hope in a moment. I used to have, when I was a young Christian, many seasons of communing with God which cannot be described in words. And not unfrequently those seasons would end in an impression by my mind like this, Go, see that thou tell no man. I did not understand this at the time, and several times I paid no attention to this injunction. But tried to tell my Christian brethren what communications the Lord had made to me, or rather what seasons of communion I had with him. But I soon found that it would not do to tell my brethren what was passing between the Lord and my soul. They could not understand it. They would look surprised, and sometimes, I thought, incredulous. And I soon learned to keep quiet in regard to those divine manifestations, and say but little about them. During that revival my attention was called to a sick woman in the community, who had been a member of a Baptist church, and was well known in the place. But people had no confidence in her piety. She was fast failing with the consumption, and they begged me to call and see her. I went and had a long conversation with her. She told me a dream which she had when she was a girl, which made her think that her sins were forgiven. Upon that she had settled down, and no argument could move her. I tried to persuade her, that there was no evidence of her conversion, in that dream. I told her plainly that her acquaintances affirmed that she had never lived a Christian life, and had never evinced a Christian temper. And I had come to try to persuade her to give up her false hope and see if she would not now accept Jesus Christ that she might be saved. I dealt with her as kindly as I could, but did not fail to make her understand what I meant. But she took great offense, and after I went away complained that I tried to get away her hope and distress her mind. That I was cruel to try to distress a woman as sick as she was, in that way to try to disturb the repose of her mind. She died not long afterward. But her death has often reminded me of Dr. Nelson's book called, the cause and cure of infidelity. When this woman came to be actually dying, her eyes were opened. And before she left the world she seemed to have such a glimpse of the character of God, and of what heaven was, and of the holiness required to dwell there, that she shrieked with agony, and exclaimed that she was going to hell. In this state, as I was informed, she died. I addressed another, a tall dignified looking woman, and asked her what was the state of her mind. She replied immediately that she had given her heart to God, and went on to say that the Lord had taught her to read, since she had learned how to pray. I asked her what she meant. She said she never could read, 
and never had known her letters. But when she gave her heart to God, she was greatly distressed that she could not read God's word. But I thought, she said, that Jesus could teach me to read. And I asked him if he would not please to teach me to read his word. Said she, I thought when I had prayed that I could read. The children have a testament, and I went and got it. And I thought I could read what I had heard them read. But, said she, I went over to the school ma single quote am, and asked her if I read right. And she said I did. And since then, said she, I can read the word of God for myself. I said no more. But thought there must be some mistake about this, as the woman appeared to be quite in earnest, and quite intelligent in what she said. I took pains, afterwards to inquire of her neighbors about her. They gave her an excellent character. And they all affirmed that it had been notorious that she could not read a syllable until after she was converted. I leave this to spoke for itself. There is no use in theorizing about it. Such, I think, were the undoubted facts. The state of things in the village, and in the neighborhood round about, was such that no one could come into the village, without feeling or stricken with the impression that God was there, in a peculiar and wonderful manner. As an illustration of this, I will relate an incident. The sheriff of the county resided in Utica. There were two count houses in the county, one at Rome, and the other at Utica. Consequently, the sheriff be by name, had much business at Rome. He afterwards told me that he had heard of the state of things at Rome. And he, together with others, had a good deal of laughing, in the hotel where he boarded, about what they had heard. But one day it was necessary for him to go to Rome. He said that he was glad to have business there, for he wanted to see for himself what it was that people talked so much about, and what the state of things really was in Rome. He drove on him his one-horse sleigh, as he told me, without any particular impression upon his mind at all, until he crossed what was called the Old Canal, a place about a mile, I think, from the town. He said as soon as he crossed the Old Canal, a strange impression came over him, and also so deep that he could not shake it off. He felt as if God pervaded the whole atmosphere. He said that this increased the whole way, till he came to the village. He stopped at Mr. F's hotel, and the hostler came out and took his horse. He observed, he said, that the hostler looked just as he himself felt, as if he were afraid to speak. He went into the house, and found the gentleman there with whom he had business. He said they were manifestly all so much impressed, they could hardly attend to business. He said that several times, in the course of the short time he was there, he had to rise from the table abruptly, and go to the window and look out, and try to divert his attention, to keep from weeping. He observed, he said, that everybody else appeared to feel just as he did. Such an awe, such a solemnity, such a state of things, he had never had any conception of before. He hastened through with his business, and returned to Utica. But, as he said, never to speak lightly of the work at Rome again. A few weeks later, at Utica, he was hopefully converted, the circumstances of which I shall relate in the proper place. The hotel at which he boarded, was at that time kept by a Mr. S. The spirit took powerful hold in that house. Mr. S. himself, was soon made a subject of prayer, and became converted, and a large number of his family and of his boarders. Indeed, that largest hotel in the town became a center of spiritual influence, and many were converted there. The stages, as they passed through, stopped at the hotel. And so powerful was the impression in the community, that I heard of several cases of persons that just stopped for a meal, or to spend a night, 
being powerfully convicted and converted before they left the town. Indeed, both in this place and in Rome, it was a common remark that nobody could be in the town, or pass through it, without being aware of the presence of God. That a divine influence seemed to pervade the place, and the whole atmosphere to be instinct with a divine life. There were a great many interesting cases of conversion in this place, and there were two very striking cases of instantaneous recovery from insanity during this revival. As I went into meeting in the afternoon of one Sabbath, I saw several ladies sitting in a pew, with a woman dressed in black who seemed to be in great distress of mind, and they were partly holding her, and preventing her from going out. As I came in, one of the ladies came to me and told me that she was an insane woman, that she had been a Methodist, but had, as she supposed, fallen from grace, which had led to despair, and finally to insanity. Her husband was an intemperate man, and lived several miles from the village, and he had brought her down and left her at meeting, and had himself gone to the tavern. I said a few words to her, but she replied that she must go, that she could not hear any praying, or preaching, or singing, that hell was her portion and she could not endure anything that made her think of heaven. I cautioned the ladies, privately, to keep her in her seat, if they could, without her disturbing the meeting. I then went into the pulpit and read a hymn. As soon as the singing began, she struggled hard to get out. But the ladies obstructed her passage, and kindly but persistently prevented her escape. After a few moments she became quiet, but seemed to avoid hearing or attending at all to the singing. I then prayed. For some little time, I heard her struggling to get out, but before I had done she became quiet, and the congregation was still. The Lord gave me a great spirit of prayer, and a text, for I had no text settled upon before. I took my text from Hebrews, Let us come boldly unto the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. My object was to encourage faith, in ourselves, and in her, and in ourselves for her. When I began to pray, she at first made quite an effort to get out. But the ladies kindly resisted, and she finally sat still, but held her head very low, and seemed determined not to attend to what I said. But as I proceeded she began gradually to raise her head, and to look at me from within her long black bonnet. She looked up more and more until she sat upright, and looked me in the face with intense earnestness. As I proceeded to urge the people to be bold in their faith, to launch out, and commit themselves with the utmost confidence to God, through the atoning sacrifice of our great high priest, all at once she startled the congregation by uttering a loud shriek. She then cast herself almost from her seat, held her head very low, and I could see that she trembled very exceedingly. The ladies in the pew with her, partly supported her, and watched her with manifest prayerful interest and sympathy. As I proceeded she began to look up again, and soon sat upright with face wonderfully changed, indicating triumphant joy and peace. There was such a glow upon her countenance as I have seldom seen in any human face. Her joy was so great that she could scarcely contain herself till a meeting was over, and then she soon made everybody understand around her, that she was set at liberty. She glorified God, and rejoiced with amazing triumph. About two years after, I met with her, and found her still full of joy and peace. The other case of recovery was that of a woman who had also fallen into despair and insanity. I was not present when she was restored, but was told that it was almost or quite instantaneous, by means of a baptism of the Holy Spirit. One Saturday, 
just before evening, a German merchant tailor, from Ogdensburg, by the name of F., called on me, and informed me that Squire F. had sent him from Ogdensburg, to take my measure for a suit of clothes. I had begun to need clothes, and had once, not long before, spoken to the Lord about it, that my clothes were getting shabby. But it had not occurred to me again. The Presbytery of Columbia had a meeting, somewhere within its bounds, while I was at New Lebanon. And being informed that I was laboring in one of their churches, they appointed a committee to visit the place, and inquire into the state of things. For they had been led to believe, from Troy and other places, and from the opposition of Mr. Nettleton and the letters of Dr. Beecher, that my method of conducting revivals was so very objectionable, that it was the duty of Presbytery to inquire into it. They appointed two of their number, as I afterward understood, to visit the place. And they attempted to do so. As I afterward learned, though I do not recollect to have heard it at the time, the news reached New Lebanon, of this action of the Presbytery, and it was feared that it might create some division, and make some disturbance, if this committee came. Some of the most engaged Christians made this a particular subject of prayer, and for a day or two before the time when they were expected, they prayed much that the Lord would overrule this thing, and not suffer it to divide the church, or introduce any element of discord. The committee were expected to be there on the Sabbath, and attend the meetings. But the day before, a violent snowstorm set in and the snow fell so deep that they found it impossible to get through, were detained over the Sabbath, and on Monday, found their way back to their own congregations. I should say a few words in regard to the spirit of prayer which prevailed at Rome at this time. I think it was on the Saturday that I came down from Weston to exchange with Mr. Gillette, that I met the church in the afternoon in a prayer meeting, in their house of worship. I endeavored to make them understand that God would immediately answer prayer, provided they fulfilled the conditions upon which he had promised to answer prayer, and especially if they believed, in the sense of expecting him to answer their requests. I observed that the church were greatly interested in my remarks, and their countenances manifested an intense desire to see an answer to their prayers. Near the close of the meeting I recollect making this remark. I really believe, if you will unite this afternoon in the prayer of faith to God, for the immediate outpouring of his Spirit, that you will receive an answer from heaven, sooner than you would get a message from Albany, by the quickest post that could be sent. I said this with great emphasis, and felt it. And I observed that the people were startled with my expression of earnestness and faith in respect to an immediate answer to prayer. The fact is, I had so often seen this result in answer to prayer, that I made the remark without any misgiving. Nothing was said by any of the members of the church at the time, but I learned after the work had begun, that three or four members of the church called him at Mr. Gillette's study, and felt so impressed with what had been said about speedy answers to prayer, that they determined to take God at his word, and see whether he would answer while they were yet speaking. One of them told me afterwards that they had wonderful faith given them by the Spirit of God, to pray for an immediate answer. And he added, the answer did come quicker than we could have got an answer from Albany by the quickest post we could have sent. I found in Syracuse a Christian woman whom they called Mother Austin, a woman of most remarkable faith. She was poor, and entirely dependent upon the charity of the people for subsistence. She was an uneducated woman, and had been brought up manifestly in a family of very little cultivation. But she had such faith as to secure the confidence of all who knew her. 
the conviction seemed to be universal among both Christians and unbelievers, that Mother Austin was a saint. I do not think I ever witnessed greater faith in its simplicity than was manifested by that woman. A great many facts were related to me respecting her, that showed her trust in God, and in what a remarkable manner God provided for her once from day to day. She said to me on one occasion, Brother Finney, it is impossible for me to suffer for any of the necessaries of life, because God has said to me, Trust in the Lord and do good, so shalt thou dwell in the land, and verily thou shalt be fed. She related to me many facts in her history, and many facts were related to me by others, illustrative of the power of her faith. She said, one Saturday evening a friend of hers, but an impenitent man, called to see her. And after conversing a while he offered her, as he went away, a five dollar bill. She said that she felt an inward admonition not to take it. She felt that it would be an act of self-righteousness on the part of that man, and might do him more harm than it would do her good. She therefore declined to take it, and he went away. She said she had just wooden food enough in the house to last over the Sabbath, and that was all. And she had no means whatever of obtaining any more. But still she was not at all afraid to trust God, in such circumstances, as she had done for so many years. On the Sabbath day there came a violent snowstorm. On Monday morning the snow was several feet deep, and the streets were blocked up so that there was no getting out without clearing the way. She had a young son that lived with her, the two composing the whole family. They arose in the morning and found themselves snowed in, on every side. They made out to muster fuel enough for a little fire, and soon the boy began to inquire what they should have for breakfast. She said, I do not know, my son. But the Lord will provide. She looked out, and nobody could pass the streets. The lad began to weep bitterly, and concluded that they should freeze and starve to death. However, she said she went on and made such preparations as she could, to provide for breakfast, if any should come. I think she said she set her table, and made arrangements for her breakfast, believing that some would come in due season. Very soon she heard a loud talking in the streets, and went to the window to see what it was, and beheld a man in a single sleigh, and some men with him shoveling the snow so that the horse could get through. Up they came to her door, and behold! They had brought her a plenty of fuel and provision, everything to make her comfortable for several days. But time would fail me to tell the instances in which she was helped in a manner as striking as this. Indeed, it was notorious through the city, so far as I could learn, that Mother Austin's faith was like a bank. And that she never suffered for want of the necessaries of life, because she drew on God. I have spoken of my method of preparing for the pulpit in more recent years. When I first began to preach, and for some twelve years of my earliest ministry, I wrote not a word, and was most commonly obliged to preach without any preparation whatever, except what I got in prayer. Often teams I went into the pulpit without knowing upon what text I should speak, or a word that I should say. I depended on the occasion and the Holy Spirit to suggest the text, and to open up the whole subject to my mind. And certainly in no part of my ministry have I preached with greater success and power. If I did not preach from inspiration, I don't know how I did preach. It was a common experience with me, and has been during all my ministerial life, that the subject would open up to my mind in a manner that was surprising to myself. It seemed that I could see with intuitive clearness just what I ought to say. And whole platoons of thoughts, words, and illustrations, came to me as fast as I could deliver them. 
When I first began to make skeletons, I made them after, and not before I preached. It was to preserve the outline of the thought which had been given me, on occasions such as I have just mentioned. I found when the Spirit of God had given me a very clear view of a subject, I could not retain it, to be used on any other occasion, unless I jotted down an outline of the thoughts. But after all, I have never found myself able to use old skeletons in preaching, to any considerable extent, without remodeling them, and having a fresh and new view of the subject given me by the Holy Spirit. I almost always get my subjects on my knees in prayer, and it has been a common experience with me, upon receiving a subject from the Holy Spirit, to have it make so strong an impression on my mind as to make me tremble, so that I could with difficulty write. When subjects are thus given me that seem to go through me, body and soul, I can in a few moments make out a skeleton that shall enable me to retain the view presented by the Spirit. And I find that such sermons always tell with great power upon the people. Some of the most telling sermons that I have ever preached in Oberlin, I have thus received after the bell had rung for church. And I was obliged to go and pour them off from my full heart, without jotting down more than the briefest possible skeleton and that sometimes not covering half the ground that I covered in my sermon. I tell this, not boastfully, but because it is a fact, and to give the praise to God, and not to any talents of my own. Let no man think that those sermons which have been called so powerful, were productions of my own brain, or of my own heart, unassisted by the Holy Ghost. They were not mine, but from the Holy Spirit in me. A pious man in the western part of this state was sick with the consumption. He was a poor man, and sick for years. An unconverted merchant in the place, had a kind heart, and used to send him now and then some things for his comfort, or for his family. He felt grateful for the kindness, but could make no return, as he wanted to do. At length he determined that the best return he could make would be to pray for his salvation. He began to pray, and his soul kindled, and he got hold of God. There was no revival there, but by and by, to the astonishment of everybody, this merchant came right out on the Lord's side. The fire kindled all over the place, a powerful revival followed, and multitudes were converted. This poor man lingered in this way for several years, and died. After his death, I visited the place, and his widow put into my hands his diary. Among other things, he says in his diary, I am acquainted with about thirty ministers and churches. He then goes on to set apart certain hours in the day and week to pray for each of these ministers and churches, and also certain seasons for praying for the different missionary stations. Then followed, under different dates, such facts as these, today, naming the date, I have been enabled to offer what I call the prayer of faith for the outpouring of the Spirit on church, and I trust in God there will soon be a revival there. Under another date, I have today been able to offer what I call the prayer of faith for such a church, and trust there will soon be a revival there. Thus he had gone over a great number of churches, recording the fact that he had prayed for them in faith that a revival might soon prevail among them. Of the missionary stations, if I recollect right, he mentioned in particular the mission at Ceylon. I believe the last place mentioned in his diary, for which he offered the prayer of faith, was the place in which he lived. Not long after noticing these facts in his diary, the revival commenced, and went over the region of country, nearly, I believe, if not quite, in the order in which they had been mentioned in his diary. And in due time news came from Ceylon that there was a revival of religion there. 
The revival in his own town did not commence till after his death. Its commencement was at the time when his widow put into my hands the document to which I have referred. She told me that he was so exercised in prayer during his sickness, that she often feared he would pray himself to death. The revival was exceedingly great and powerful in all the region, and the fact that it was about to prevail had not been hidden from this servant of the Lord. Thus this man, too feeble in body to go out of his house, was yet more useful to the world and the church of God, than all the heartless professors in the country. Standing between God and the desolations of Zion, and pouring out his heart in believing prayer, as a prince he had power with God, and prevailed.